and welcome back to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. Although Ryan and I aren't parents ourselves, many of our fellow adoptee friends are, so we've wanted to discuss the topic of adoptees as parents for a long time. In this episode, Ryan talks to Dr. Jess Walton, a Melbourne-based senior researcher, an author, a new mother, and a dear friend of ours. Jess shares openly and generously about her research, her new book, and her experience of becoming a parent for the first time. Ryan and Jess also discuss Jess's research on acting white, adoptee emotional labor, racism, the important and often overlooked role of foster mothers, attachment, pre-verbal loss, and finally, the immeasurable joys of having a child. Jess, thank you so much for being on our podcast, and we hope everyone enjoys this very special episode. Hi, Jess. Hey. (laughs) It's great to be on this show. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks. Um, So I'm sure quite a number of our listeners know you or have heard about your work, but would you mind introducing yourself briefly? I'm Jessica Walton. And I work at Deakin Uni. Um, I'm a Korean adoptee. Um, adopted to the U.S. and came to Australia 15 years ago. Yeah. And so I've done research on adoption and um, yeah, <laughs> lots of that kind of lots stuff. Of that kind yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. So now that now that you said that, I realize that my next question mm-hmm. is actually slightly incorrect. Um, which was, you've lived in Australia for almost half of your life now, oh. which I realize may be factually inaccurate, so I'll read <laughs> um, Wow, that's so, coming up, though. <laughs> it's coming yeah. up. Um, so nonetheless, you've lived in Australia for quite a while. Yes. <laughs> um, does Australia feel like home, and or what does home mean to you? I call it everywhere home. It's funny, because home has always been so transient in many ways. Obviously, you have a physical place that you might call home, like the house I grew up in or a town. But then because belonging has always been difficult for me, I think that's why I'm always like, oh, I'm staying in a hotel. Gotta go home now. (laughs) Or staying with a friend's at a friend's house. Gotta go home. You know, we're going home now or something, you know. So, but in terms of Australia definitely feels like home to me. <laughs> like it's Qantas ad or something. <laughs> um, and this podcast is not being sponsored by Qantas. <laughs> no. I don't get anything from Qantas and maybe... Okay, I'll stop with saying Qantas. Um, uh, um, so, for me, living in Australia is kind of like a chosen country. Um or my adopted country, I guess. Um, And so it's nice to be able to start somewhere new where it's kind of my choice to make something of it rather than just being adopted to the US and not having any choice in that matter as a baby. So Australia felt a bit like a clean slate for me and that I could make it the kind of home I wanted it to be within reason, I mean, Racism is still a huge problem, um, obviously, in Australia, and I experience it every now and then in terms of more 
interpersonal style forms of racism. Um, but in some ways I can kind of deal with that better than when I'm in the U.S. because I'm like, well, I'm from here, from, from the U.S., so why should you say that I don't belong here, I'm not from here? Whereas in Australia, I'm a, I'm a migrant, and so I feel that even though obviously it's still not okay, um, it's something I can cope with a bit more, if that makes sense. I don't know. Sorry, I'm rambling off into... No, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, in some ways it feels like home, in other ways it, it doesn't, because mm -hmm. I didn't grow up here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's easier in some ways to live in a, like a third place, or like you said, a chosen place, as opposed to the U.S. or, say, Korea? That Australia, in that sense, as a place, is sort of more has more possibility. I guess you've already actually yeah. answered this question. Yeah, yeah. I, it, um, it's like I'm reading your mind. <laughs> no, we're just such good friends. Like, <laughs> you haven't asked me questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think also for me, Australia's home in ways that the U.S. isn't. So I didn't know any adoptees when I was living in the U.S. It was only until I came to Australia that I met other adoptees for the first time. I think partly because I wasn't living in a metropolitan area in the U.S. and so it was harder, and it was also before Facebook and everything, so <laughs> it was harder to um, get meet other people. And so coming to Australia, I suddenly felt that there are these people who were also adopted, not just from Korea, who understood me and in this really uncanny way that I never experienced with anybody else and that was like an emotional home for me mm -hmm. because I didn't feel that I had to explain things or I didn't have to worry how they might react to something sad or something difficult um yeah and not like it's not like all adoptees just get each other but they do I think in a way that other people who weren't adopted can't understand because of that lived experience yeah. how did you sort of first come into contact with um, other adoptees in Australia? Uh, through my research. Uh, I think initially how I got into adoption research was when I went to Korea for the first time and I was just so naive. I, no I just had no idea. So all, I never even thought about my adoption in ways that were critical and until I went to Korea and I was like, oh god, am I Korean? Who am I? Where do I belong? Oh. <laughs> it was just like everything at once. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do a PhD on that. Uh, not recommended, but <laughs> no, it was really worthwhile. So that's how I met other adoptees mm -hmm. at first, um, through the participant process of trying to connect to other adoptees. And then, um, yeah, some, some of the people I um, interviewed I'm really good friends with still. That's been really wonderful. So when tracing um, my adoption history, I had to like Google map Masan and then search directions to Chinchu, which was the branch I was blah, 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 mm -hmm. um, and then directions to Seoul, mm -hmm. just to sort of follow the trajectory as written in my file. Mm -hmm. So seeing the distances I had to traverse within the very first few days of my life mm -hmm. on a map was quite um, a thing. But what I also thought about was how many hands and arms and people I would have had to come into contact with to actually facilitate that movement and of course landing with a foster mother mm -hmm. right at the end of that um, for me for about four to four and a half months. Mm -hmm. 
You've mentioned that we don't discuss foster mothers perhaps enough. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak about that? Yeah, I think um, it's really since I've become a mother myself that I've realized how much their role and labor that they put into raising babies from birth, because we're separated from our mothers from birth, how much is involved with that and how marginalized their experiences and that labor is. It's just like there's some kind of cog in the adoption process that's just, they're just a transition to the ultimate of being adopted. And I just wonder what their experiences are with um, caring for these, for us, for babies, with, yeah, caring for babies um, from day one or day two. (laughs) And um, waking up in the middle of the night all hours of the night and feeding them and holding us and I keep, the pronouns like just keep switching back and forth between us and them because it's just so connected to who we, I, am, um, are. So I think their stories don't feature as much because it's been so dominated by here is a child who has been made an orphan who can now be adopted to another family. So whatever needs to happen to make that happen is secondary, and that's just not the case. And yeah. Just to add to that, when I met my foster mother, mm-hmm. um, I found out, which I imagine is quite similar to a lot of cases for a lot of other foster mothers, she had her own children, mm-hmm. um, and so she was looking after her own children, mm-hmm. plus a baby. And, you know, she, she said it was very, very, very difficult to, to give the baby away, right, at the end yeah. um, of that. My foster mother's daughter actually said she rem- she remembered me because mm. she was early teens, the time that I was there. It was, it was just, like, wild, oh. yeah, that, that, yeah. Um, yeah, that you're right, that that's seen as a means to an end and, and a transition point mm. instead of something that gets focused on. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the dominant adoption narrative almost makes that story disappear because it's part of the past before adoption and that's meant to not matter anymore because now you're in this new fantastic family in a new fantastic country aren't we so lucky and shouldn't we be so grateful and so anything that happened before that point in time is just something that is insignificant compared to the present and I think that's a big part of why mm. we don't talk about or, or why we don't place value on that and in many ways it's as adoptees it would be an, it's another form of loss for us it's too painful probably to admit that we, not only did we lose our birth parents we also lost our foster parents who also experienced their own form of loss from what it sounds like with your foster mother. Mm, yeah. So there's just so many layers of loss um, that get sidelined because of this other dominant narrative that takes over. Mm. Yeah. I remember it really hitting me when, like, my my counselor also said, oh, and you would have grieved, like, being separated from your foster mother. <gasps> and the first time she said that, I was like, it sounds so obvious. I know, right? I know, I don't but know why. you just start like, like, yeah. like, oh, I... Of course, like she's the face mm. that I, that it would have 
seen every day and you know like exactly it's just and not just occasionally like the baby is so needy they need you all the time <laughs> so she would have had to she she would have had you in a carrier or whatever and maybe slept next to you i don't know if co-sleeping yeah. or or what happened how it happened yeah yeah did she talk about it well, we can talk about it later <laughs> <laughs> um we'll come back to the topic of of parenting um, later, um, but I'd like to talk a little bit about your research and your um, very recently published book. <laughs> Yay! 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 Uh, called Korean Adoptees and Transnational Adoption: Embodiment and Emotion. Oh, it's Yay. got a title. It's real. <laughs> so the theme of acting white. Mm comes up in your research and in said book. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about what that means, um, what that looks like, and how that feels? Because your mm -hmm. emphasis is on um, affect. Yeah. Um, so I guess to start with, yeah, what does, what does acting white mean? Um, yeah. And what does that look like? Yeah, so acting white is a form of, of fitting in for adoptees who grow up in predominantly white families or in predominantly white areas or just in a country that is the majority is predominantly white and so there's that um, expectation that to be white is to be normal and so it's not just about oh you know you're a teenager trying to fit in it goes much deeper for adoptees um, as a form of identity because of that racial disconnect um, that we have maybe not necessarily within the family because there might be um, other adoptees who are from the same country but even adoptees who have siblings adopted from the same country or, or another Asian country for example will still experience that racial isolation in, in many ways because of being a racialized minority in their country um, and so acting white um, is in some ways like an ascribed identity. Um, however that looks like for an adoptee is different, but it might involve um, speaking uh, in English really loudly or, or clearly just to avoid the question of, oh wow, um, can you speak English? Or how good's your English? Or, I mean, people, adoptees will still get, wow, your English is really good. Where are you from? So it doesn't, it's not always successful when you're acting white. So just things that kind of perform that white identity to try and not stick out or to be seen as being Asian, I guess. So that's one side of it. But then to feel white, um, because that becomes it's such a bodily experience, um, it's not just a form of performance or I'm going to be white today, you know? It's... <laughs> it, it, you, you're so... you're racialized into into whiteness, I guess, and so you for, your body... you forget that you're not white, and so adoptees would talk about how when they looked in the mirror, for example, um, they're surprised to see an Asian face looking at them. And some might just dismiss that as, oh, how how silly, you know, of course they know they're Asian. But it's not just that, it's such a lived experience that you do, you just, you, you so successfully <laughs> try to um, feel and be white that it's kind of a racial violence against your own body because it's clearly not white 
And um, so when people question that, so if you're on the street and somebody does say, oh, where are you from, or are you an international student, or whatever, it's that racism can hit really deeply um, because it just draws attention to how futile it is to be that, but then you don't know any other existence, so it's really confusing. Like, am I Korean? Should I try to act Korean or Asian? You know, mm -hmm. it just, yeah. <laughs> mm. Right, so, so acting white is both potentially, um, in certain situations, strategic yeah. and conscious, yeah. but in a lot of other ways, acting white is just sort of a more default way mm. of navigating the it's very embodied yeah yeah right so it's on yeah. those sort of two registers yeah it's also really interesting that acting white means acting normal mm -hmm. and how acting white might also be acting like american i guess because american is always white yeah is, is that the kind of because there's this like yeah. it's ethnic identity but it's also racial yes and there seems to be this like mixing and slippage between the two yes yeah so acting australian or and that's different you know according to, to gender or for example masculinity you might um in Australia, focus on, you know, sport. Oh, I'm really sporty. I like footy and cricket and whatever. And that, I'm really Australian. I eat meat pies and Vegemite and whatever, you know? <laughs> like, I'm really Australian. Stop questioning it. You know, I tick all the boxes. Um, and, you know, friends will tell adoptees that, oh, I forget that you're Asian because you just like, like so much like us. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, isn't that great? You're not weird like those Asian people or I don't know where, you know. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. I think we've all heard versions of that, like, but you're not a real Asian, mm -hmm. um, meant as somehow a compliment. <laughs> I'm interested in whether your research has come across those sorts of ways in which you're seen to be, you're recognized as an exception. Mm -hmm. Because you're adopted and therefore not a quote-unquote real Asian, mm -hmm. as if that's... A bad thing to be. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of internalized racism in the acting white, for example, and and also that really derogatory stereotype of you're a banana. Mm -hmm. um, so you're like a fake Asian, fake Asian on the right, one, right. outside, you know, like you're actually just a fruit. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think there's that rejection and distancing from other Asian communities, so you aren't seen to belong to that community because and yeah adoptees I interviewed talked about how they actively avoided for example if there was a Korean community in there where they lived not actively seeking that out or um, just because being Asian was different and different in a negative way based on experiences of racism or just not wanting to be different to their friends, to their family, even, mm -hmm. uh, and so that was probably like welcomed as a compliment. Yay! I'm su I've succeeded. I'm not. You don't see me as Asian. Yay! <laughs> I'm wearing the invisible cloak. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah. So it's not often until like uni or when adoptees go back to Korea or not all. I mean, there's only a small percentage who do do that, or who meet other adoptees that identity of being, what does it mean to be an adoptee for one, um, and also being Asian, 
and what that might mean as an adoptee can kind of come out a bit more um, and be allowed as a positive thing to explore rather than just being rejected. Mm. Yeah. So you talk about um, emotional labor mm -hmm. or adoptee emotional labor, um, if I get you right, in two ways. The first is the labor entailed when you field questions from other others particularly non-adoptive people. Yeah. Um, but the second one is on um, the emotional labor involved in conducting research on adoption as an adoptee yeah. yourself. Yeah. Um, if we can start with the first one, can you tell us about what emotional labor is mm. and how we are meant to perform that? It's kind of that extra work and often experiences stress um, involved in executing a certain role or duty is, is traditionally understood in, in, for example, hospitality or service industries. Um, but f and it's based on particular social expectations um, and needing to fulfill that, such as you know putting a smile on your face or you know creating this image of, of service and hospitality that a customer expects, for example. But is actually involves more labor than just serving somebody food and yeah um, but for adoptees it's the extra work that's involved when you have to navigate adoption issues or questions about who you are that isn't such a straightforward task you know it's not just oh my family's from Adelaide or, <laughs> and that's not something that's just accepted, then you have mm -hmm. to think, you know, how do I approach this question, where are you from? Do I just, do I just say cheekily, oh, I'm from Adelaide, knowing that they're expecting that you're going to name some Asian country, you know, or, you know, my family is from China, and so it's always China or Japan. Um, and then after that, oh, Oh, so your parents, are they living in Australia or are they in, in Korea? You're, some, you're from Korea, that's interesting. And then you have to make that decision, do I reveal that I'm adopted or not? And then what is that going to involve? Are there going to be further questions that I then have to work through and decide how much of myself do I want to give in this interaction? And so the emotional labor involved in adoption for adoptees is often, that's sort of an example of having to do that extra work when you least expect it. So the second way you talk about emotional labor is added energy or whatever it takes to also be an adoptee conducting research on adoption. <laughs> yeah. um, can you tell us about the ways that you take care of yourself during that process? Yeah. I suppose the process itself, firstly, is you're often bearing witness to stories that resonate so much with your own or or don't, you know, or just hit different chords that you're not necessarily expecting. And so that, so there's that experience of emotion, but then the emotional labor aspect of that is having to navigate the so-called objectivity of academia, where you're expected to to be a researcher and code your interviews and and thematize all the you know and not 
have this experience of, of course you do do all that as a qualitative researcher, but then what does it mean to do that in the process of, you know, it's not just simply coding interviews or or um, thematizing across interviews, for example, or reading through field notes. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes I would just come to my computer and weep <laughs> mm -hmm. because I just couldn't bring myself to enter that space again. It was just mm -hmm. um, so... You mean while you were doing your actual PhD research? Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. Because it was something I was working through at the same time because I had known any other adoptees growing up and this is the first time that I could deeply engage with other adoptees stories and sorry I've forgotten the first part of your question because I wanted to talk about the process first so no yeah please please yeah oh, continue about the process. okay <laughs> okay um it is it's a form of of witness witnessing these stories that or often for the adoptee that interview, the first time they told somebody, and to a stranger, and that you're trusted with these stories, and what will you do with them in ways that obviously don't represent all adoptees' experiences, but you have to stay true to, as much as you can, to this gift that someone has given to you mm -hmm. to be heard in a space that's marginalized. And, and so how do you... How do you do that while also getting the thesis done, for example? <laughs> and, and, you know, going to your performance reviews and your super, and talking about this research at conferences in 10-minute sound bites when so much of that labor that goes on behind the scenes isn't allowed to come out, I think. It depends on the academic space sometimes that's encouraged to talk about. Um, but reflexivity and positionality that's involved when doing research. But not all the time, especially when you're seen as that native insider researcher. Um, because, yeah, your, your objectivity is questioned. Like, how can you be sure that your emotions and your own experiences aren't clouding your thoughts about and your theorizing of these experiences? But I think it's, you know, there's different facets to research and everybody has different posi positionalities they have to navigate no matter what their position is whether they're adoptee or not but there's an added value I think in having that sense of understanding with other adoptees where you can kind of go deeper into those experiences mm -hmm. in ways that a non-adopted person couldn't do in the same way I think mm -hmm. um, and I think also so I talked about the emotional labor of adoption when you're talking to mainly to non-adopted people and then there's the emotional labor of doing the research but at the same time it's funny because when you're reading the stories you often get, even though it can be difficult, you think this person is exactly my story or this is exactly what I've been feeling my whole life that I've never been able to articulate as well as this person has. <laughs> yeah. um, and so there's almost a relief as well. It's not just a weight placed mm -hmm. on you. Um, yeah, so it's so, it's so complex. <laughs> <laughs> while you were doing your, your PhD research, and also I imagine while revisiting that material for your book, yeah. um, so are there, or what were the ways that you took care of yourself oh, while yes. doing that? Just being as kind as I could to myself, giving 
myself as much of a break as I could because you know when you're doing your thesis or you're writing a book you feel guilty when you're relaxing you feel guilty that you're not doing more work you could be writing a paragraph in this 10 minute time period that you've been you've spent making yourself a cup of coffee you know there's always that I'm way so I know you're just like oh, I could have written the whole chapter today if I just sat and chained myself to this chair so you have to take care of yourself I mean counseling helps um, but also talking to other adopted adoptee friends um, and just and especially other adoptee academics um, who are in a similar situation because they're also going through that and it just helps to know that you're not alone and that what you're experiencing is is valid and shouldn't be something you should shy away from, I guess. And I think with my thesis, I did shy away from that mm -hmm. because ac academic institution that I was working within didn't always encourage that bringing myself into my research as much and so as a junior academic I just thought oh I want to be a real academic I can't do this I want to be taken seriously and so I engaged with it a little bit but it was not as much as I wanted to mm -hmm. and so with the book I just revisited those those snippets of especially around the emotional labor and the embodied experience of adoption as an and as adoptee researcher that I didn't fully explore in the thesis, which mm. I could finally do in the book, oh, which wow. was a relief. It was the only thing that really motivated me to go <laughs> back to it, because I was like, I can't do this. I can't go back to my thesis. It's done. No, it's not done. You have to write a book. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, so this is related to your adoption research, but you also conduct research on racism in Australia. Um, has conducting your own research helped to reframe any experiences of racism you might have undergone? Yeah, definitely. I think it's funny how many people, you, how many adoptees or or uh, minoritized people, <laughs> racially minoritized people that you talk to who think who grew up thinking they were the only one who is experiencing mm -hmm. this. Um, because, unfortunately, racism is so individualized that this is what racism looks like when actually it's a structural, systemic, historical problem that is ongoing. Um, and so researching about racism helped me to rethink what was happening at that time. It wasn't just in my head that I was feeling different or people were responding to me in certain, wa in certain ways that, you know, because it's often quite... Well, you might call it, you know, subtle racism, but to the person experiencing it, it's not very subtle. And you're like, I feel that glance a mile away. <laughs> that, you know, I know that glance, that, that, that one that just lingers half a second too long. Mm -hmm. um, so that really helped. Also difficult because, <laughs> I mean, as others have written about, like Sarah Ahmed, for example, that um, the work on racism as a racial minority is seen is as almost like you're complaining or you're bringing you're part of the problem that you're talking about racism mm -hmm. <laughs> so i think there's that aspect of but overall it's been beneficial to to think about those earlier experiences in a way that connects you to other people not just adopted people but other people who experience racism in similar ways yeah mm -hmm. Right, so similar to what you were kind of saying before is a kind of affirmation 
of an experience yeah. that is understood to be shared as opposed to... It's shitty for so many people. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> and that should all make us feel good. Yeah. <laughs> if it's okay with you, we'd like to explore or go back to the topic of parenting. Yeah. Um, if you feel comfortable speaking about that. I'm a new that. parent, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you tell us a bit about your experience of pregnancy and of becoming a mother for the first time? Yeah, I kind of had a sense that it would have a big impact. People, other adoptees who become parents were telling me that, you know, you can start to think about your adoption in different ways, but I didn't really know what that meant, um, obviously, because it's such an, it's like the ultimate embodied experience, right? Like, you've got this person growing inside of you, and that's like your mom, when you're inside your mom, and their mom, and their mom, uh, not elephants, turtles. Turtles all the way down. <laughs> elephants would be very heavy. All the turtles would get heavy too. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess it was just... I'm still going through a process of understanding the impact that this little person has had in my life. Very positive impact, but also just in ways I hadn't anticipated. So I remember being on a tram when I was pregnant in the evening. Um, so I could see my reflection in the opposite window and looking at myself um, fully pregnant and just I had this moment of wondering what it must have been like for my mother to be pregnant but so isolated. I'm so fortunate to have a strong support network living in a city with so many resources where single parenthood isn't, well, I'm not a single parent, but if I, w if I was it's not as stigmatized as it was in Korea and still is in many ways um, and just wondering what that would have been like for her. and I just started like quietly crying on the tram because I hadn't it just it was just so overwhelming at that point in time to to wonder how this person my mother carried me and survived enough for me to survive <laughs> and here I am also pregnant and so there's that um, and just also the connection, I think in adoption, you often get this dominant narrative of, oh, you're a baby, you're like a tabula rasa, you're basically a clean slate, you're just this little, little person who had no affiliation, <laughs> no cultural connection, no anything, because you're just a baby. But that's not true at all. <laughs> And I think about how much you spend, how much time you spend in the womb, whether that's for the full term or not. Um, and that strong, everyday, minute by minute, second by second um, way of being with another person, your mother. Um, and I mean, I just remember sitting through parent education classes at the hospital. And one example was the midwife who was running the classes said, what senses do you think a baby has when they're in the womb? And people were like, oh, maybe hearing, maybe sight, but maybe their eyes weren't open. And she was like, all the senses, smell and taste. And so when the baby's born, they automatically search for the smell of their mother and the sound of the mother's voice. And I just, I had to leave the room. Because I just, I'm getting feeling like teary now just thinking about it. Um, because 
all of that is so marginalized and undermined when you're an adoptee because they're just like, oh, you're with us now. Your mother sacrificed all this for you so that you could be with us. And then that's kind of the end of the story. But you don't realize how much she sacrificed or how much loss is involved. That's so pre-verbal, so primal that you can't even understand fully what that loss is. Because what does it mean to lose the scent of your mother, to not have that, the scent of your mother your entire life when you've had that scent for nine months and then suddenly you can't find it um, when you're born? Yeah, my baby just automatically, instinctively clambered up my body to get to me <laughs> and to feel the warmth of my body when she was born. Um, so that was really intense. So just that attachment, I think, was so strong and it was something that, you know, you, we've had as adoptees but was taken from us. And so in some ways I think, and I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but in some ways I think that that early loss of that attachment stays with you and because of these dominant adoption narratives as well, you're not encouraged to kind of explore that fully, what that means, because it's so painful for one, but it's also not something that people focus on at all. Um, and so it was through having my own child that I could finally start to think about that, sort of, in the midst of <laughs> sleeplessness and, and um, exhaustion. But uh, I think that attachment was initially really hard for me because I didn't know what that was like because um, I was dealing with my own attachment feelings of wow this baby is so connected to me I must have been also very connected to someone else my mother mm. um, and to make that connection between myself and my baby was so intense I just couldn't even go there <laughs> I just needed space but gradually I think um, and then the attachment to the foster parent mm. what that must have been like or the foster siblings um, who become just your siblings and just your mother because as a baby you don't know any differently. They're your new mom. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then that mother gets taken away. And then what is that like for a baby in the early days? Um, and then, yeah, and often people will say, oh, you're only adopted at four months or two months or eight months. You must not remember anything. Which is so insulting. Because mm. so of course you have bodily memories. You have almost the strongest of memories, even if you can't cognitively remember it. It's stronger than any memory you'll ever have probably in life, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that realization lent validity to my experiences and feelings of loss as well as an adult adoptee, I guess, going through it later in life. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing That's that. A lot. <laughs> um, yeah. You were just making me think that a few years ago, when I was trying to think through my adoption and stuff, it, it, I always felt like, how can I know what I've lost if it's lost? Like, how, how could I ever have access to be able to grieve something if I don't actually know what that loss even looks like? Mm -hmm. Whereas what you've just described sounds to me like you're coming face to face with with that loss that previously might have just been loss as a word or a concept. Yeah. But you're actually seeing, perhaps. Um, yeah. And, and feeling, I think, from being pregnant, almost 
having that that bodily experience of what that would have been like for me as a baby but also my mother feeling me inside her because you know our daughter you know kicked and kicked and it wasn't something that you could ignore you know so <laughs> I think it really is like the connection begins so early your first experience of biological connectedness? Yes. And huge question. <laughs> okay, already for it. What's that like? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, well, it's been 10 months of having a biological connection to somebody. <laughs> Out of how many years that I've been on this earth? Yeah, so I mean, if you don't count the time in the womb and all of that, but uh, yeah, I just, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, not all babies are immediately, obviously look like their parents, but I'm fortunate in a way that she does, Isla does look in many ways like me, which I was really hoping for, because I really wanted that um, physical resemblance as well as that biological connectedness. Um, Can I ask quickly, did, yes. did you see it immediately? Did it, that related resemblance? Um, hmm, well, maybe not exactly when she was born, but when I had, when we went back home and I looked at that photo of, of myself at Eastern, when I guess I was initially placed into my foster parents' home, I never knew how old I was in that photo. Hmm. And I just, because I had a lot of experience with babies or being around babies, but after having Isla and I saw her what she looks like it's a newborn and then I saw this photo I'm like I think I was only maybe five ten days old in that photo wow. and so it wasn't like I was two months old no definitely not I was definitely under a month old mm. in that photo so when I looked at that and compared it to Isla we did look quite similar and and it was hard because when she was eight months when I was adopted that was really difficult because I just saw how much she had attached and connected to, you know, she's part of our family, she's part of our daily existence. And to have that social disconnect, and as well as that biological disconnect, all at once would be so intense for a baby. Um, biological What's that sorry, like? Yeah, yeah, what's sorry. that like? What's that I like? Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, it's, it's really nice and... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> also, growing up in a family where I was the only person who was not white and visiting my family in the States and suddenly having one other person in the room who looks like me is pretty amazing, but also made me realize the racial isolation that I experienced and how much I had to just try and ignore all of that and keep, mm. keep going. And that's a huge weight to carry as a baby and as a child, as an adolescent and into your adult life. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, having that's pretty amazing, that mm -hmm. connection, yeah. Hannah wanted to ask a, okay. quite, a, quite a sweet question, uh -huh. I think. Um, do you recognize the beauty of Korean or Asian features and your own features through your child? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh! That's lovely. Actually, yes. Um, it's an intense connection <laughs> with, with having a baby. 
And it, sometimes it's just so overwhelming how much I love her and how much she means to me that I just can't look into her eyes. <laughs> it sounds a bit crazy, but it, it is it's just so much. But sometimes when we just have a quiet moment, I take off my glasses and I stare into her little brown eyes and they mirror mine. They're a little bit lighter than mine. Um, but she just stares straight back at me in this purest, the purest form possible. Just so loving. And it's so nice to just appreciate, I guess, my own eyes and her eyes and not see the Asian features that were so stigmatized and bullied. <laughs> um, because it felt like my eyes were being bullied or my hair or my, you know, just these parts of me that weren't pretty or, you know, seen as normal or whatever are suddenly just so perfect. And it's wonderful to have that. Oh, thanks, Hannah. No. Aww. <laughs> That's a beautiful question. <laughs> That was such a cute question and answer that I wish it was the end of the interview, oh, but unfortunately, no. I have just a couple more questions, okay. if that's okay. That's fine. Um, what do you think we ought to talk about more in terms of parenting for adoptees? Ah, still working it out myself, but what does it mean to parent as an adoptee, not just adoptees parenting, if that makes sense. <laughs> Probably mm -hmm. doesn't. Um, so... I guess because becoming a parent, no matter if you're adopted or not, brings up, changes all of your relationships in life or makes you think about your relationships in life. And as an adoptee then, I think it would be helpful to talk more about what that means, like I was saying, for your own experiences as an adoptee. Because it's so, oh, what's the word? It's so circular in a way that suddenly you're both your mother, if you're a woman pregnant, um, speaking from that position rather than a, um, a different um, position, you're suddenly both your mother and your baby at the same time. It's kind of weird. I, I just might be late in the night and I'm talking about crazy <laughs> that things. That makes a lot of sense. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like, oh, how, oh. I guess around attachment, I suppose, and and the feelings of loss that that brings up for you and how you then parent through that loss. I mean, how do you, when you're dealing with your own questions of attachment and, and your own adoption story, how can you then parent from that position to someone who's already so connected to you? It's such, I mean, being Adoptee and becoming an adoptee in that sense of understanding what it means to be an adoptee, not just something in your in your adoption papers, is such an existential experience that I think the extra layer of being becoming a parent adds to that. I guess. What would I like as an adoptee, as an adoptee who's also a parent? Um, I mean, I think just having a way to talk. Obviously, I'm struggling with the words because. There hasn't been a narrative in my life where I can access that in ways that I can relate to, and so it's all kind of new territory at the moment. Um, and I think just talking more about that in an exploratory way, um, and it's almost like, well, 
as an adoptee, I felt racially isolated. Oh, you do too. Or as an adoptee parent, I've had difficulties connecting with my baby. Oh, you do too. Okay. Um, mm. What's that like for you? And just sharing that a bit more and don't have the answers, but I think there's a lot of us who that experience brings up for us mm. around those topics that would be really valuable to talk about. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Mm. Last question okay. on parenting. Oh boy, um, I must be a parent. <laughs> <laughs> That's also something I'm getting used to now. <laughs> what kind of upbringing, experience, or tools would you like your child to have that you, oh. that you didn't have growing up? Oh, it's everything. <laughs> well, they're gonna have you. <laughs> That's true. Someone you, did remind me of that. Yeah that they're not going to be the only one in their family who looks different or something like that. Yeah. So, oh gosh, I was, yeah, I just want her to be able to understand, to, to be happy with who she is and her appearance and just be really confident and self-assured and, um, but also to know when she does experience racism, because it will happen, I, you know, it's, unavoidable, which I'm uh, trying to admit to myself that it's unavoidable and I won't go in jail because I've <laughs> defended my daughter. You're saying and, like, you won't go to jail? Go go to jail. jail. Anyway, <laughs> edit that out. Anyway. <laughs> oh gosh, I won't become like lioness and attack whoever is... Oh, yeah. Um, but I want to give her the tools to understand how to cope with racism and what that is. What her, how her experiences are being structured by this um, racialized system that we are that we live in, and so not just race, but also oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say about um, being an adoptee parent. I think also how do you talk to your child about why her grandparents don't look like me, mm. and how so? How do you talk about adoption with your child who's not adopted? and your history and bring that family history into it when you're only still working out your own family history as much as you can given limited access to records. So, <laughs> how do I talk to her about that? And, ah, uh, I don't know, so much. I don't know, I can't, so much. Yeah, yeah, I just want her to be able to handle the world in every way possible <laughs> that gives her the best chance at just being happy and living a, a good life, yeah. Like every parent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is a really interesting, uh, you know, because I think we still live in a world that is generally holds a certain idea about what adoption is and how and what it's for and that it's good, it's a universal good and, and whatever. And so many, you know, even stories that ch children get told are around a child that loses parents, or an orphan, or, you yeah. know, and and how, as an adoptee parent, you then say, look, this is a part of my history, and also these narratives, yeah. let's learn together how to, like, you know, read them in, in, like, maybe more critical ways, but then how do you do that yeah. with a young child? And I don't know, it's, it's um, I think J-Ron, um, when we interviewed J-Ron, J-Ron uh -huh. talked a little bit about an adoptee identity for the parent being something that then gets also transmitted to 
their kid, even if their kid isn't adopted. Yeah. So yeah, just interested in that sort of family mm. storytelling. Yeah. And weaving your story into their story mm. because obviously they're so interconnected and mm-hmm. how that all. And the other thing I'll do with with Isla is speaking to her in Korean as much as I can mm. during the day. So she already recognizes Korean words. So that's something I didn't have, I guess. That's so that she you now has. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she knows the word for fan. Sunpungi. Sunpungi, Ala, Sunpungi. And she's like, looks at the ceiling and goes with her hand. I'm like, yes, that's a fan. Oh, you understand the Korean word for fan. How cute. Thank you so much for sharing so openly and candidly. (laughs) And thank you so much for the research that you've done and that you're still doing and your (laughs) book and I'm sure everyone is super excited to get their hands on it yeah Yeah. thank you so much it's (laughs) really great to be part of this amazing podcast I feel like so privileged to be asked to be part of this podcast we're privileged that you're on the podcast (laughs) this can go on oh this can go on alright anyway it's been fun (laughs) thank you thanks Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you enjoy the podcast, please write us a review or leave us a five-star rating. You can also support us via Patreon for as little as $1 per month. Details at patreon.com forward slash Adopted Feels. Adopted Feels.